right, well, at this time, our kids ages four to six are welcome to join Mike and Kelly over here. What are you guys studying this morning? Studying about Miriam. Studying about Miriam. Okay, great. Hey, guys, also want to let you know something that we've been praying about. Uh, the Lord has clearly answered prayer. This week, we had our associational vote for the director of mission position that I was telling you about, uh, where I was chair of the search committee. And so uh, this had been a lengthy process, uh, take about 10 months uh, before it was all said and done. But praise the Lord, uh, the, the vote was unanimous. And so David and Shannon are, are going to be making their way here. They should be here sometime in May to begin that work. And so you'll be able to meet them when they arrive. If they were here on a Sunday evening for one of our foundations courses. So some of you guys got to meet that. But guys, that's an awesome answer to prayer. And I'm so thankful that that is the case. And so we want to praise God for uh, just his kindness in answering that prayer. So let's bow our heads. Oh, also, uh, keep, keep the Billingsleys in mind as well. I don't know if you got the news, but uh, the judge has decided that uh, uh, the Peyton and McKenzie will be going back home. And so that was heartbreaking and somewhat unexpected, but we understand and we trust in the goodness and providence of God in that as well. And so let's, let's pray for them as well. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we could be here this morning. God, it is a delight to be able to gather with your people and to sing songs of praise for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that he would truly be our treasure, our joy, our hope this morning. Lord, I pray that, that entrapments and entanglements of, of sin would be set aside that we would no longer be, uh, find ourselves enslaved to it, but that we, we would be able to set our, our minds, our hearts, our focus on Christ today. Lord, we, we thank you that you are a God who is at work in the midst of all things, that right now you are at work in, in our lives in ways that we can't even imagine whether it be um, you answering prayers and, and as we celebrate who you are and what you've done in a unanimous vote in our association to bring David and Shannon, these former uh, International Mission Board missionaries, to become our director of missions for our partnership of churches here in East Central Illinois, or even the heartbreak of, of hearing that the Peyton and McKenzie will return home. But Lord, we pray that you use it. We know that you are good. We know that you are sovereign. We know that you care for your people in, in ways that we can't imagine or begin to fathom. We pray for their parents that they would repent and believe in the gospel, that they would be transformed and would love their children well. We pray uh, that the hope of Christ would fill these children's heart and would sustain Caleb and Kelly. because they have to trust in you. Pray for our children now as they sit and hear from your word and see how you are working through the lives of your people. Lord, I, I pray that in all of these circumstances we would be able to see your clear, kind, good, wise and powerful sovereign hand at work in all situations and circumstances and that we would give you praise because we know that apart from you we can do nothing it's in Christ's name we pray amen well if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 be looking at verses 26 through 40 this morning, and you can pay, find it on page 917, and the Bible's provided there in the pews. How does someone come to faith in Christ, and, and what all goes into that? 
Have you ever thought about what is necessary for a person to receive salvation in the name of Jesus? And again, providence would reign, unless, of course, Caleb read my manuscript beforehand, but providence reigns in the fact that he was quoting from from Romans 10 earlier, right? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts earnestly that God has raised him from the dead. And if that's the case, then we will be saved. And so hearing the word of God is necessary. Believing, truly believing from the heart is necessary. Turning away from our rebellion against God and confessing that we now follow Jesus as our Lord is necessary. And of course, none of that can happen unless someone proclaims it. And so the proclamation of the gospel is necessary. But not everyone who hears the word believes Nor do all Christians faithfully proclaim the gospel as they should. And so there has to be something more. There has to be some compulsion. There has to be some work of the Spirit to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind to see the good news of Jesus, who regenerates hearts of those who are hardened towards God, who gives new life to those who are dead in their sin. And this same Spirit also has to be at work in the one who proclaims to call and compel God's people to declare the good news of Jesus Christ for the salvation of others. And so the Word of God and the Spirit of God are both necessary for someone to come to faith in Christ. Both of them. And there's a danger when we try to pit them one against another. If we were to overemphasize the Word of God, then we can reduce evangelism down to, or someone coming to faith in Christ, down to a transaction of information, right? It's just about you hearing these words, and I'm going to tell you these words, this, this message, and as long as you accept that message, then you're saved, We think about it just a public affirmation of a certain set of doctrines. And so it's really about getting that message right, having the right method or the right strategy for our evangelism, planning events and trainings and revivals and trying to determine what is that lowest common denominator, what is that lowest rung, that basic essential belief system that must be there for somebody to truly believe. And then that's what we're going to do. It's going to be about proclaiming that, getting that message out there, getting them to understand that. How can we do that in our own strength and our own ability to get them to hear and to receive and to believe and to obey? But if we overemphasize the other extreme, we overemphasize the Spirit in salvation, we can confuse evangelism and faith in Christ. It can become subjective, a matter of feelings, emotions, passions, or compulsions. And we think to ourselves, you know, as, as long as someone is enthusiastic and they're saying that they believe in Jesus, then who are we to question what they actually heard or what they actually believe? Because look, I mean, they're excited, they're sincere, they're amazed. But friends, we can easily confuse the work of the Spirit with the emotions of men. We saw that last time in looking at Simon Magus. I mean, here was a man who believed, was baptized, got, he was really, really amazed, really excited, but yet his heart was not changed. His profession was false. And if it's all about the subjective leading of the Spirit, whether you want to capitalize Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit, or keep it lowercase, the spirits of men, We won't talk to anyone about the gospel unless we feel compelled or unless we see signs or visions or have some, hear some audible word from the Lord before we go and we tell anyone about Jesus. But even then, when we do it, we sort of put Jesus aside to talk about our own personal experiences because, hey, I got this word from the Lord that I need to come and tell you. And it's not really about the word of the Lord. It's, it's really about my, what happened to me. And so I'm really excited. I want to tell you about that. And, and we can accidentally or inadvertently manipulate people through our own professions or through our own experiences, our subjective impressions, rather than waiting for God to do a work in them through the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit that leads them to heal and to receive and believe. You see, one leans heavily on the objective, the word. The other primarily on the subjective, the spirit. 
But we need both of them to think rightly about evangelism and how one comes to faith in Christ. But quite honestly, guys, we cannot stop there. Because we can, we can be about both, the Word of God and the Spirit of God coming together in this person's life as we proclaim the gospel and they come to faith in Christ and still present that and think about that in a very, very man-centered way. Yes, we need the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, we need passion both to proclaim and to receive the word of Christ. But friends, we also need to behold and to marvel at the providence of God, both in the call and in the commission, both in the declaration and in the devotion by faith to the word of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. In it all, we must not fail to see the sovereignty of God in the sending and in the saving because apart from him we can do nothing not by planning nor by passion this morning we come to a very familiar passage for many Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40 it's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch And in this passage, we are going to see that it's not ultimately about our evangelistic methods or our missionary plans, and nor is it about our impressions of the leading of the Spirit. The Word of God goes out bringing people into the faith from every corner of the earth because God is at work, because God has a plan, because God is the one who is fulfilling his mission, empowering his people by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ to the very ends of the earth. And so at the heart of this passage lies one profound and yet very simple truth. That our sovereign God is at work to save the nations through faithful witnesses. Our sovereign God is at work to save the nations through faithful witnesses. And so let us marvel at the providence of God as we see him fulfilling his mission as we read this passage together. Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who's in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip up uh, to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I hope that you can see just in the reading of this text that our sovereign God is at work to save the nations through faithful witnesses. But just to make that abundantly clear to us this morning, I just want to break that statement down into three simple parts. And so first, 
Our sovereign God is at work. Friends, have you ever stopped to consider all that God has done in your life to lead you to the place where you are right now? All of the decisions all of the the guidance of Scripture, all of the ways that he has sustained you, how he has made himself known, all the times that you have been presented the word of Christ, all of the Christians that he has brought into your life who have pointed you to Jesus. I mean, when you think about it, it is overwhelming. I remember the first time I read the little book, Trusting God Even When It Hurts by Jerry Bridges. This book is a practical application, a lengthy meditation on the providence of God in your life. And I remember just being struck by how God was at work in my life, and I started rejoicing. I was so glad to be able to clearly see how God was moving in my life through all of the trials and blessings that I had experienced to lead me to the place where I found myself. It was so overwhelming. I was overjoyed when I considered the constant gentle hand of God in my life through every single pleasure and every single pain that I ever endured. And I started rejoicing so much to the place where I was contacting people and actually thanking them for how God has used them in my life. But that story is not unique to me. We all have stories. And I'm sure that we could go around the room this morning and if we talked and we shared our lives with each other, we would hear thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of ways that the Lord has sovereignly guided how he has led, how he has directed, how he has moved to bring us to the place where we are today. profound, saving ways through very, very ordinary means. Well, you may have not considered God's providence in your life, or or maybe right now you're kind of in a situation where it's really hard for you to see God's goodness, his kindness, his gentleness in where you are. And so let's just consider the sovereign work of God in the lives of these two men. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We first learned about Philip in Acts chapter 6. We don't know all that much about him. He appears in just a few verses there in Acts chapter 6. He's here in all of Acts chapter 8. And then he'll be in a few verses back in Acts chapter 21. We do know that he lived in Jerusalem. He would have come to trust in and follow Christ sometime between the Pentecost sermon of Acts chapter 2 and the end of Acts chapter 5. So sometime in there, hearing the word of Christ and believing. And, and God was at work clearly during those times, whether it be through these, these tongues as, as God was enabling his disciples to proclaim the gospel in the native tongues of other people or through miracles being performed and lame being healed and, and demons being cast out or in the death of Ananias and Sapphira that really kind of freaked everybody out and, and they esteemed them highly though they would have nothing to do with them. Or, or even in the miraculous deliverance of Peter and John from prison, it was clear and powerful verification that God was at work supporting the truthfulness of this gospel claim. And so Philip, some point in there, repented of his sin, he believed the gospel, he received the Holy Spirit. And we know of him from chapter 6 that Philip was a Hellenist. That means he was a Greek-speaking, Greek-acculturated Jew. And so what that means is in the eyes of the Jews, he was an outsider. When you think about this in terms of worship, just kind of always being on the fringes, always being on the outside, yeah, he's kind of sort of one of us, but not really because he's compromised. You know, he doesn't, doesn't know the Hebrew language. He doesn't know the Hebrew culture. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them their own synagogue over there, the synagogue of the freedmen, and he can go and he can worship and learn from the Lord with all of those former slaves and all of those Greek-speaking people, and we're going to meet over here. 
Is let that let that sink into you about who Philip was. So Philip would have experienced ridicule as he tried to worship God under the Jewish system. And yet we also learned that Philip was faithful. I mean, when the whole congregation in Jerusalem put seven men forward to oversee this task of daily distribution to make sure that the Hellenist widows were not neglected, we learned that Philip was of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And this wasn't his work. This was God's doing. God was the one who was filling him. And as the church devoted themselves to each other, as they were unified, as the apostles continued to teach, and these seven men, Philip included, served as unto the Lord, we read that the word of the Lord continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests seeing this unity, seeing this love, seeing this service, seeing this truth became obedient to the faith. Then Acts chapter 7 happened. Philip's friend Stephen, his ministry partner was stoned to death by a mob for preaching the word of Christ. And he was preaching the word of Christ to the very synagogue, the people of the very synagogue that they used to worship among. These are family and friends and acquaintances. This would be like you all turning on me or you all turning on someone else, like Brian in the church. He was stoned for preaching to the same council that condemned our Lord Jesus to death dragged out of the city, and killed. And that event, the martyrdom of Stephen, was a match that lit the fire of persecution throughout Jerusalem that led to thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians, Philip himself included, having to flee, having to scatter for their lives, having to let goods and kindred go. Everything that they had come to know and love and live for in this life in a moment is gone because they are on the run. But what did they do? It says that as they went, they continued preaching the word of Christ. It didn't squash their joy, but only magnified their hope in the gospel. And so they went out. Philip made his way to the city of Samaria to what Jews considered to be the scum of the earth. Everybody hated them, but yet that's who he goes to in love. Philip, the outsider, went to outsiders, and God did a work to bring much of the joy of salvation to that city. Much of the joy. Despite that whole bad you know, situation with Simon Magus and his false profession, I mean, this is a, a ministry hotbed. This is where you want to be. God was blessing Philip's ministry in the city of Samaria. This is a joyful, vibrant ministry. But, but what, do we, what does God do here in this passage? It doesn't make sense to us. He calls Philip away from the thriving church in Samaria by a message of an angel and says in verse 26, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke wants to make it clear for us, this is a desert place. So God calls Philip away from the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. He calls him away from the city into the wilderness. He calls him away from the garden of a thriving, joyful ministry into this dry and desert place. Let's wrap our heads around this. The mission of God does not make sense to us. But Philip obeys. He doesn't know what this means. He doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't have a plan or a strategy in place. He just goes. Verse 27, he arose and went. He gets there. He says, okay, God, now what? And what, is God, what does he find but an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure? An unlikely convert at just about the last person you would expect to find on this desert road. 
And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs up alongside. And what does he hear but this eunuch reading from Isaiah, from one of the clearest passages in all of the Old Testament that points to Jesus. Are you kidding me? Now, guys, in ministry, this is what you call a softball or low-hanging fruit because it's easy pickings. Philip just trots up alongside this guy and he, at, and he hears him already reading the Bible and this passage that clearly speaks of Jesus. And so Philip just asks, hey, hey, you, you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch responds, how can I understand unless someone guides me? I mean, this is an open invitation to sit with him and explain its meaning. And so Philip hops on board and beginning with this passage, he told him the good news about Jesus. Guys, do you see the hand of God? But God is not done. As Philip is teaching, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of this eunuch's heart so that he sees Christ in the scriptures and he believes the good news that Jesus died a humiliating and unjust death to pay for the sins of all of God's true people, nations included, and he earnestly desires to publicly profess his newfound faith in Christ through baptism. And what does the Lord provide for him in this desert place? A pool of water. Now, I'm a Baptist, so i got to deal with this, right? So I'm only going to take a paragraph to deal with it, but i got to. They stop the chariot. Philip and the eunuch both go down into the water. And it says both go down into the water. Keep that in mind as you think about sprinkling or pouring, right? Philip immerses him, because that's what baptism means, in baptism, upon profession of his faith, which later manuscripts insert verse 37 as a baptismal formula. Now look in your Bible. Read for me verse 37. Oh wait, you can't, right? Because your Bible will either say verse 36 and 38, or it'll say 36, you'll have a 37, and then you'll have a 38. But it'll also have a note for you down at the bottom where it says that later it was added, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so what's happened here is for clarification's sake, at some point the early church wanted to make it crystal clear that this eunuch was baptized upon profession of his faith and it wanted to provide a summary statement about the earnestness of his heart and abridged profession of the Christian faith so that later readers would have a better understanding of how this whole faith and baptism thing is supposed to work. You believe with all your heart, you make a public profession of your faith in Christ and then you are immersed and then it says both came up out of the water now if baptism was to be done by pouring or sprinkling then why did Philip and the eunuch both go down and come up out of the water especially if it's in the middle of this desert place I don't know about you but I've seen a sprinkling or a pouring or two and I've never seen the guy that's performing the baptism just kind of get himself a little bit too And so thank you, Luke, and thank you, early church, for this clarification regarding believer's baptism by immersion. I'm done with that. My Baptistness is over. We're going to go back straight to the text. Not that we were ever deviating from it. Now, you would think at this point that Philip would have continued with the eunuch to see the church planted in Ethiopia. I mean, this is a brand new believer who needs discipleship and he's getting ready to go back. He has to go back. He's constrained to go back. And so you would think that Philip would go with him. But God had a different plan in mind. Instead, while the eunuch continued south, rejoicing in his newfound faith, God led Philip northwest back to Samaria, to Azotus, preaching the gospel. He made his way up to Caesarea, where God would plant him for long-term gospel ministry. Philip would end his days there. Now, don't get carried away by the fact that it says that Philip was carried away. Right? More than likely, this is in reference to the strong direction of the Holy Spirit, not divine teleportation. But either way, 
God had a clear plan in mind for Philip, and it wasn't Ethiopia. It was the region of Samaria. It was the city of Caesarea. And the hand of God planted him right where he wanted him, and the same is true for the eunuch. Now, we'll come back to the eunuch in a minute. But can you not clearly see the kind, providential hand of God in this passage? Can you not get a sense for how God was continually at work through every situation and circumstance in both of these men's lives to lead them to this event, to this time, to this place, and then led them out into different directions? Does it not also lead you to consider what they did as a result of that? How God was using them as they went on their own directions. How God affected these places where they went by these two men. Uh, Those in Ethiopia, the very court of the queen herself. And so many Samaritans from Azotus to Caesarea as Philip devoted his life in preaching the gospel. God clearly had a plan for their lives. For Philip, it was Samaria. You know, had the apostles simply stayed in Jerusalem, the gospel would not be here. Had Philip simply stayed in the city of Samaria, the gospel would not be here. Had the church simply stayed where it was, the gospel would not be here. But God is at work through every moment of life so that the word of the Lord continues to increase and disciples are multiplied and brought to maturity in Christ. The mission of God continues to move forward by his providential hand for the glory of God and for our joy in him, whether we stay or whether we go through the exciting times that we see happening in Philip's life or the very ordinary means that all led up to it. Every single moment of every single point in time, all for his glory and for our joy in him. And friends, if that has been true for them, Philip and the eunuch, it has been true for God's people. And in fact, it has been true for all people since the very beginning of creation. And if it's true for all people, then get this, it's also true for you. It is no accident that you are here. It is no accident that you are right where God has you doing exactly what God has you doing. It is no mistake. You haven't missed out on the will of God. He knows what he's doing through your pleasure, through your pain, through it all. He knows what he's doing. Have you considered what God has done and what God is doing on your behalf? Have you considered all that has transpired in your life to lead you to this very moment? Whether you're here and you would call yourself a Christian or not, it is no accident, it is no circumstance that you find yourself here listening to this word. Friends, think about it. Have you ever considered why on earth I'm here? And I I don't mean existence. I mean the fact that you're in this room this morning. Who brought you here? What brought you here? You didn't just wake up and say, you know what? It's a nice sunny spring day this morning. Think I'll go to church. Why are you here? It is because God is at work right now in your life too. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Christian or not. God has made no mistakes. You are here for a reason. Whether you find yourself this morning as one on on the inside of the church like Philip or one who was on the outside like the Ethiopian, our sovereign God is at work right now. And it is evident because you are here. And so listen to what God has to say to you. Listen. Listen. Our sovereign God is at work, and he's at work for a purpose. And that purpose, second, 
is to save the nations. The thesis statement for the book of Acts is found in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends to his heavenly throne, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Get this, the Father has fixed the time and season for the restoration and glorification of his kingdom. He has given the power of the Holy Spirit to his people so that they can and will proclaim the gospel both near and far. And this kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that is comprised of people from every nation, every people, every tongue, every language, every demographic that you can possibly imagine, every subculture that you can fathom in your mind, no matter what they look like or where they're from or where they've been or what they've done. It doesn't matter. It's for them. And here we see God doing it. Friends, do you realize that the ancients considered Ethiopia to be the end of the earth? Herodotus, Strabo, Philostratus, Heliodorus, and Homer all write of Ethiopia being the last men, the end of the earth. And here we see God bringing the ends of the earth to Philip. Not at the temple, not in the city of Zion, but on a desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And friends, God does this to show his people that though God is clearly working to save the nations, we are to take the gospel to them. Philip goes, God brings, but it's both happening. It's not one or the other. God is doing this work. Philip was in Jerusalem. He was in Judea. He was in Samaria. And now God has providentially led him to come face to face with the very ends of the earth in the middle of nowhere to meet the most unlikely man in the most unlikely place who would be the first convert, the true Gentile convert from the nations. You see, God is far, far more concerned about the nations than you and I ever will be. And he has been and will be working to make his name known among the peoples of this world in ways that you and I could never, ever even imagine. And I mean this, uh, that this is an Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, he's a minister of finance from the remotest part of the earth. And Philip finds him in the middle of the desert reading from Isaiah 53. I mean, it blows the mind how God is making his glory known. I was talking with some kids once in this little tiny village in India. And I asked them, so what gods do you worship? And they rattled off a number of names. Most of them said Shiva, the destroyer. And so then they turned to me and they said, well, what gods do you worship? And I said, well, I'm a follower of Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. And they heard that. And you know what they did? They all lined up and they started singing Away in the Manger. It was like, minus the, crow, the, 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 the choir robes and the conductor up front. I mean, you had a children's choir right there. And now, this is not the most gospel-saturated song, and they clearly were not believers just because they happened to know the song and to sing it to me. But what was amazing about that event is that it reminded me that no matter how dark the place is, no matter how godless the society, no matter the, the competing gods around that are leading people away from the true God into false worship, God is making his name known. You know, as I talk with my missionary friends from places like China or Turkey or Papua New Guinea, they'll tell me similar stories of how as they got to know the people and as they had discussions, they would see evidence of of God making his name known and they could build upon this foundation of previous witness to lead them to faith in Christ. And so you know what I did? I told those kids, listen, that song you, you sung, do you know what it's about? Do you know who it is speaking of? That child that you're singing of is true. And let me tell you something else. He is far more powerful than any God of this world, any Shiva the destroyer, because God was making his name known. 
He was already at work to save the nations. And friends, when you think nations, I want you to also think outsiders. Because this Ethiopian was an African. He was a black man. And not only that, he was a eunuch, which means that he was either an indentured servant, a slave to the queen, or he voluntarily took an oath, effectively making himself an indentured servant to the queen to fulfill this position for his life. And the sign of that servitude was that he was made a eunuch. You guys know what this means, right? I mean, there's just no sort of careful way to say it. My, my grandpa was a cattleman. We called them steers. He was castrated. But by the grace of God, this eunuch from the very end of the earth came to hear of the God of Israel and to hope in him. Perhaps it came through the histories of the queen of Sheba, the queen of Ethiopia a thousand years before. But this man had somehow, by the grace of God, come to be a God-fearer. And this man, not only did that, but Bible scholars believe, took a five-month journey by chariot. Now, don't think of like this really pristine sort of battle chariot, gold laden and all that kind of stuff. Think more to yourself, a flat cart behind an ox. Took this five-month journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. But because he was a eunuch, because he was deformed, he would not have been able to fully participate in worship there. He was a defiled, blemished outsider with very limited access to God. Let that sink in. He had no right by birth or by life to stand before God. And yet we see him earnestly pouring over Scripture, trying to understand. When Philip approaches him, he's reading one of the most explicit references to Christ in the Old Testament. Like a sheep was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And all Philip has to do is ask him, do, do you understand what you're reading? And, and notice his humility. Notice his teaching. Ability. In verse 31, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Though I can read it and I can to some level affirm it, I cannot understand unless I am guided. Like a blind man being guided until he is given new eyes to see. In a missionary context, this is what you would call a man of peace or a, or a person of peace. He's eager, he's inquisitive, he's hungry, he's teachable, he's inviting, he wants to know. God has clearly been doing a work in his heart to prepare him to receive the gospel. Friends, God is at work. I mean, look at the question that he asked right there in verse 34. About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Friends, you can't ask a better question than that. He's not saying, hey, what does this mean to me? Or how is this relevant for my life? He asks, no, who is this pointing to? What does this mean that I should know who this is? And so, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And the eunuch believed earnestly from the heart. The eunuch asked to be baptized. Now, there's no one around, right? He's not doing this for personal glory like Simon Magus did. But you can tell that he wanted to obey Christ in all things. That's in part why we submit to baptism, because we want to obey Christ, earnestly desire to obey Christ in all things. And, when, and even when the Lord led Philip to Azotus, the eunuch didn't attach himself to Philip the way that Simon did because he was amazed by signs and wonders. But instead, he went away still rejoicing in our sovereign God's goodness in bringing him salvation. Now, I would have loved to have been there to listen to this conversation. I'm so curious about what all Philip said to this man. 
To be able to hear Philip tell this man of how Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. That all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Or perhaps, perhaps Philip rolled out the scroll to Isaiah 11, verse 11, where it speaks of how in the day, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, that is Ethiopia, from Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. How even right now this lamb was risen and ascended and is interceding on behalf of our transgressions. Or maybe he rolled out the, the, the scroll to just a few chapters later in Isaiah 56 and read to this defiled, deformed, outcast foreigner, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall never be cut off. You'll never be cut off. And in hearing this, the eunuch overcome with joy and faith in Christ says, okay, then what prevents me? What prevents me from following Christ in faith? What prevents me from being baptized, from, from experiencing the full inclusion into the blessings of God by faith in him? And you see, when, when you take it in context, both in Acts and in Isaiah, that verb prevents indicates that all barriers have been removed. Hindrances to the spread of the gospel to all people. In this case, the double barrier, both of physical deformity and racial prejudice have fallen. Every spiritual barrier of unbelief has been broken down. And here we have a eunuch, a Gentile, a defiled sinner, the least likely convert was baptized and received into full membership among the people of Jesus Christ. That is the sovereign work of God to save the nations, to save outsiders who do not deserve his grace. And so the question becomes, what prevents you? What prevents you from receiving the Lord Jesus Christ? What prevents you from responding by faith in baptism? Well, you, you don't know who I am. You, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter to Jesus. He came to save sinners. Well, I'm unworthy. So are we all. Well, you know, Christianity is a Western thing. I hear this a lot in Eastern backgrounds. It's a Western thing, and, and I, I think that's funny because this story is about a poor, outcast, Greek-acculturated, Middle Eastern Jew and a wealthy, high-status African. The West isn't going to exist for a while. The reality is every single person in this room is in the category of this Ethiopian eunuch, a unworthy, outcast Gentile. So, what prevents you? Only your loving, worshiping, and living for other things before God. Let me just address the young people in this room. When I say young people, I'm, I'm talking specifically to children who are here with your parents. I don't address you guys very much, but I want you to hear this. What prevents you from responding to the gospel? I mean, do you know who the scripture speaks about 
who it all points to? Have you repented of your sin and, and believed in, upon Jesus Christ? Are you taking God at his word? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to this world and took on flesh and lived a perfect life of obedience to God? Do you believe that he died on the cross for sin and rose three days later so that you might have new life in him by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in his sacrifice on your behalf? Do you earnestly desire to follow after him and to learn from him in his word? Do you consider him to be your Lord? Not just mom and dad's Lord or the church's Lord, but he's my Lord. Well, that is the sovereign work of God in your life. That he is actually making your heart ready too, just like this eunuch, to receive the gospel. And so what prevents you from responding to the sovereign work of God? And if you believe that you have professed faith in Christ, who have you told? Have you talked to your parents? Have you talked to someone in your community group? Have you, you can always come and talk to me or Caleb or Kyle. You know, if there was anyone who would think that the good news of Jesus Christ was not for them, it was this Ethiopian eunuch. But our sovereign God was at work to save the nations. And this man ended up being the first fruits of God's labor towards the nations in Jesus Christ and a fulfillment of Isaiah 56. And so if God can do that for him, then God can do that in you. And so our sovereign God is at work to save the nations, but God uses means. And the means we see him use time and time again is our third point. God uses faithful witnesses. You see, though our God is sovereign over all there is and he has no need for anything in his wisdom and in his kindness, God toward us uses means. And the means that he uses is through the proclamation of his word, through the mouths of his people. Not simply the reading of his word or the passing on of the information that is contained in the word or our enthusiastic personal stories about what God has done, but in the authoritative, truthful, sufficient proclamation of his word. Friends, ask yourself, what is it that saved this Ethiopian? It wasn't his morality or his religious observance. Again, the guy made a five-month pilgrimage to worship God in Jerusalem, and he used that travel time to do his Bible reading. It only takes 72 hours to read through the entire Bible, so I'm sure he got all caught up on his reading plan and still had plenty of time to pray too. But that did not save him. And neither did Philip's testimony save him. Oh, just let me tell you about what the Lord has done in my life. Or, or you won't believe the story of what God did to lead me to you, right? He just, I had this audible voice from the Lord, both from an angel and from the Holy Spirit that said, come and find you. And here you are. And so you need to accept this word that I'm telling you because look at what happened. That's not the point either. No, it was the word of God about Christ. This man was reading the word, but he was still blind to it. He still needed understanding. He still needed someone to guide him, to show him who this passage was speaking of. And so Philip began with that passage. He taught that passage, and from that passage told him the good news about Jesus. Now, God had clearly been doing a work in this Ethiopian eunuch's heart, you know, but at our level, salvation comes when we receive God's word, when we understand scripture, when we are guided by it to Christ as God's people proclaim it to us, as we trust God and we take him at his word, as we see Jesus and we love Jesus and we glory in Jesus from his word. And notice here, there are no signs and wonders were required. 
right? No rocking praise music or lighting was necessary. No singing of hymns, right? No building filled with programs for my kids. No fine-sounding arguments. No apologetic proofs. No emotional appeals. No dream. No vision. Just a question and an explanation. And God did a work in this man's heart as Philip proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. That's all that it took. All that it took. And God opened the eyes of his heart to behold the glory of Christ, a faithful exposition of God's word sitting on a flat cart behind the tail end of an ox. And this man's eyes were open to see Jesus and love Jesus. And that's all that it took because God is at work and his scripture is sufficient. You want to know why we structure our services the way we do? Why I rattle on so long as I do? It's this right here. So often we get this wrong. We, we think that faithfulness is displayed in buildings, in programs, in crowds, in budgets, in performances, in songs, in generating emotional responses by manipulating situations and circumstances to get them to feel a certain way. When our faithfulness as God's witnesses is always displayed in a commitment to God's word, a commitment that trusts God, that takes him at his word, that sees and rejoices in the sovereign work of God, that delights in the glory of Christ who earnestly and actively seeks to obey him in all things and one who is open to God's direction for his life. Philip was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, but he, he wasn't a faithful witness because he heard an audible word from an angel and the Holy Spirit or because God miraculously teleported him from one place to the next. That's not what made him faithful. It was because Philip was the result of God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that he should walk in them. Philip believed God and Philip obeyed God. We get so caught up in the miraculous that we often miss what really makes a man. How God's work was really evident in Philip's life. It wasn't from all of the bells and whistles and light shows and smoke and all that stuff. What made him a faithful witness? Character, conduct, convictions, competencies, and confirmation of the church. That's what made him faithful. Right? Philip was a, was a man of godly character and holy conduct. We've seen that in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. He held deeply to biblical convictions, which were displayed in his joyful proclamation of the gospel and love to those formerly hated Samaritans, even in the face of persecution, even in the loss of his way of life, even in the death of his dear friend and ministry partner, even in the imprisonment of a number of other Christians. Philip understood scriptures, how the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus, and he was compelled to make him known. He understood God's heart for the nations and believed it so deeply that he was willing to leave a thriving ministry in Samaria to go to this one man out in the desert to baptize this man who would have no church to go to. I mean, and after what had just happened with Simon Magus, and you wonder why the Ethiopian eunuch had to be the one to suggest it? Talk about being skittish. Talk about being fearful and not wanting to trust God in this situation. What was this guy going to do? He has no church to go to. But yet God was faithful to trust God that he would provide a church for this man as the Holy Spirit strongly directed Philip back to Samaria and which Irenaeus records that he did. That the eunuch returned to Ethiopia boldly proclaiming the gospel and people came to faith in Christ. The church was formed though it was fledgling and wasn't truly established until a couple of centuries later. Philip clearly had competencies competencies that began in his faithful service to the church, to evangelize, to ask good questions, a knowledge of scripture that allows him to teach from that passage the good news about Jesus, 
competencies that were displayed in his ability to shepherd the churches both in Samaria and in Caesarea. And Philip had the confirmation of the church, the church in Jerusalem and no doubt the church in Samaria as well. But in this passage, do you want to know what a faithful witness looks like? A trust in the sovereign work of God, a readiness and openness to the Lord's direction that is willing to set his plans and his agendas aside to follow Christ, a reliance upon the sufficiency of Scripture and the competency to provide an understanding by starting with that passage in Isaiah 53 to tell him the good news about Jesus. And friends, that can be any one of you. If you need a little help with seeing how that could be, let me just recommend to you this little book, One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm. We have them in the back for five bucks. If you don't have five bucks, you can just take one. This is a, a, a great little tool in helping you to do just what Philip did. Sit down with somebody that doesn't know Christ, read the Bible, ask good questions, tell them the good news about Jesus. When we consider Philip's ministry, we can see how our sovereign God was at work through the church to make Philip ready. We see it in his worship, the fact that he devoted himself to prayer, to the apostles' teaching. We see it in his active service in the church. That's what made it clear, this call to go. Sometimes we don't know about what makes it call to go. I was like, you know, if you're faithful with little, God will make you faithful with much. How are you devoting yourself to what God would have you to do? And when you devote yourself to that, the church will confirm it and you'll know. But God was making him ready through ordinary means. And God was making him willing as the Holy Spirit empowered him. And friends, that's God's heart for every one of us. To be ready and willing not having everything figured out, not having all of the plans and strategies in place and every scenario kind of worked out in your mind, having some perfect standard before the Lord that that I'm just good, I'm perfect, I'm right before God ever sends me out. But it also doesn't mean that we're flippant or that we're passive or that we just sit around doing nothing but singing emotionally charged songs until we hear a word from the Lord. No, we devote ourselves to the word of God and prayer and we commit ourselves to the service of the church and the more we know of God, the more we earnestly seek him in prayer, the more we will see his sovereign work and understand his heart for missions and find ourselves willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also to obey his commission and the power of the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded because we trust in the fact that Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so the question becomes, why not you? Why not you? Are you ready? Are you willing? And if not, what's standing in your way? Your plans? Your agendas? What really captures your heart and causes you to stand in awe? Are you unprepared with God's word to be competent for every good work? How do you remedy that? Friends, what's standing in your way? What prevents you from serving? What prevents you from sharing the gospel with those people around you? What prevents you from being sent? Because our sovereign God is at work to save the nations. And he's doing it through faithful witnesses, just like you and me. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we would take great delight and joy as we consider all that you have done and are doing on our behalf. That we would marvel and rejoice at your sovereignty, that we would see your kind and gentle providential hand at work, and that it would lead us to rejoice, to stand in awe, to see your goodness in our lives, to praise you that this is the day that you have made so that we can rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we know of your concern for your holy name, for your glory, your heart for the nations to bring people in from every tongue, tribe, and language. But so often, Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we we pray these prayers, we, we think of people, and we think just in terms of, oh, that's great that you would send them to go and you would do this work, but we don't ever stop to consider the part that you would have us play in that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would respond to your word this morning by just checking our hearts. What is it that makes us unprepared, unready, unwilling? What keeps us from serving and devoting ourselves to the things that you would that, that, that please you? What, what keeps us from sharing this life-giving gospel, those people that you bring into our lives who don't know him? What keeps us from considering, why not me? Lord, give us wisdom to ready our hearts to be empowered to go for the glory of your name, for the good of all your people from the ends of the earth, and for our joy in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.